Welcome to the inaugural Voices of Nature podcast. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Global Conservation Corps is a nonprofit organization with a mission of bridging the gap between communities and wildlife. We believe that in order to have a world with wildlife and healthy ecosystems, we must facilitate a mutually beneficial relationship between wildlife and the people that live alongside it. Voices of Nature is a podcast by Global Conservation Corps dedicated to sharing the voices of young, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural species. By creating this podcast, Global Conservation Corps not only wants to showcase the amazing work of people who have dedicated their lives to living and working in some of the most challenging places in the world, but also exploring solutions that all of us can be part of in an effort to protect wildlife and the ecosystems that all of us depend on for healthy, prosperous lives. Our guest today is Matt Lindenberg, the founder of the Global Conservation Corps. Welcome to episode number one, Matt. I appreciate that, Bob. Great to be here. Very excited. I've got goosebumps. I do too. This, um, the, the, I'm excited about this conversation, but I'm also particularly excited to embark upon this journey of this podcast with you and the team of GCC, because I, I think some of the people that we have lined up are just, have just such amazing stories. The work that they're doing is so impactful and so transformative that it's, um, it's really going to spur a lot of excitement, but more importantly, I think catalyze change in the, in, in achieving the vision and mission of this podcast of protecting wildlife and the ecosystems that all of us depend on. This was your brainchild as well. So just a huge thank you to you for putting in the time and the d dedication and all the research to figure out what goes into actually creating a podcast. So thanks to you for getting us rolling here. Well, it's my pleasure. And I very much look at the GCC team as co-collaborators in this, in this effort. So tell us about Global Conservation Corps and its mission. Brilliant, Bob. Yeah, thanks for the platform. So just to go back to where we, we got our roots and where we got started, uh, GCC was founded in 2015. And as you already alluded to, Bob, yeah, with the, with the overarching mission of bridging a very large gap between the local communities that border protected areas and the conservation areas that they live next to or adjacent to. So where we work is in South Africa, where I'm talking to you from today, uh, right next to the world famous Kruger National Park, which is roughly 2.2 million hectares in size. It's roughly the same size as the Netherlands, one of Africa's largest protected areas. And on the border of that park, I think everyone knows Kruger Park really well, we've got around 4 million people, um, many of which are living in substandard conditions and come from very disadvantaged communities and backgrounds. And so that's really where GCC sees our focus and our mission is being able to impact the individuals, especially the youth that border these protected areas. And that especially based on South Africa's very unique um, and, and rather oppressive history of indigenous populations, uh, trying to change the narrative whereby local populations and communities are the ones benefiting the most from the continued existence of that wildlife. And so with with the way that we've evolved over the last five years, as an organization, we see us um, being able to deliver uh, results and benefits to the communities on a sort of multi-tiered approach and focus, um, both short and long-term solutions. So our short-term solution is focusing heavily on the rangers, the wildlife protectors that 
literally are, are putting themselves at risk every single day to keep rhinos, elephants, other iconic and endangered species uh, safe from poaching. As you, as you really well know, Bob, working together, you know, we're losing two to three rhinos a day here in South Africa. And if it wasn't for these ranges, um, we wouldn't have the luxury of thinking about long-term long-term solutions. So that's really where we are making our, our biggest immediate impact is working directly with these rangers. Um, but on the other hand, you know, rangers are buying us time. They, the, the aggressive level that this war on poaching is being fought at is not a sustainable solution. Um, the rangers are holding the line, but it's impossible um, to, to continue going the way we are without thinking about some long-term solutions that take the pressure off the rangers. And so our biggest focus is definitely in the long-term space, which is around the Future Rangers program, which is creating career pathways for youth passionate about finding employment in the greater wildlife economy and removing some of those roadblocks and barriers to entry to allow these passionate young individuals to find benefits, immediate benefits from, from wildlife and from the natural world. And the last thing that we do that we sort of focus on is storytelling. So, you know, you're only as good as the ability you have to share your, your news. You know, if no one knows about what you're doing, it, it doesn't really serve, serve the greater purpose and the greater good. So, you know, we've got a media branch as well of GCC, which we've got two films in production, which I'd love to talk a bit about today, as well as something we've just coined uh, the inspiration engine. So in a nutshell, Bob, uh, we've got a lot going on, but it's thanks to an incredible team that keeps us focused talking with you, Matt, and, and, you know, learning about the history of GCC, there's a very interesting person in a way that's been behind this all. Your, your mentor, Martin Mathembu, you met in the dining hall at the South African Wildlife College when you were studying there. Can you talk a little bit about Martin and why, why he's so special and how he inspired the creation of GCC? Yeah, Bob, absolutely. So I first met uh, Mr. Martin Mtembu in yeah in the cafeteria at the southern african wildlife college uh in about 2009 and just for the record as well the sa wildlife college trains reserve managers um field guides um, and a number of other conservation-based professions throughout sub-saharan africa um so when i was there i was working as a as a as a guide as an apprentice and the first time i met martin he, uh, he, he had a huge presence about him, um, not a tall man, but just a built, like absolutely built. Um, and he had a, a number of students sitting around him uh, asking him questions. And I just thought, oh, this is a man I had to meet. So over the next couple of years, I got to learn um, a lot more about Martin's story, what he had done before coming to the Wildlife College, before he was a ranger trainer. And it was a really powerful story of defying the odds and, and doing something that was sort of unimaginable in, in his sort of era. He was, he was born in 1968 on the 16th of August. Um, very, very humble beginnings in KwaZulu-Natal, which is one of our provinces here in South Africa. And obviously he was born into an apartheid South Africa, which was, you know, 50 years of white supremacy and, and basically restricting the freedom movement, the rights of, um, of black people here in South Africa, indigenous people. And so as the oldest of eight children, one of the few things Martin could do when he turned 18 was to enlist in the South African military. So being a black man in an apartheid ruled South Africa, Martin was sent to the most dangerous locations because according to the ruling government at the time, his life was, was cheaper and worth less than, than white soldiers. So he got sent into the, um, 
the most you know dangerous and and scary situations where he gained a huge amount of skills uh, martin also lost his dad at a, at a really young age as well so as the oldest anything he made in the military he was he was sending back uh, to support i believe it was seven other siblings um, his mom and extended family and throughout his military career martin gained really specialized skills and he spent a lot of time working and training in in the african bush um, away from cities and out where you know a lot of wildlife existed as well and that's really where martin started to connect with nature and after martin exited the military and of course south africa got its independence in 1994 um, martin then brought all of his, his skills and his training into the conservation sector and from the time that martin started training rangers in the mid 90s all the way through until his passing in 2014, it's, it's estimated that Martin trained around 15,000 rangers um, all across Africa, Angola, Mozambique, South Sudan, um, any place you could think of that, that had major conflict at the time, Martin was there, especially during civil wars um, and, and times of conflict, Martin would go in to secure the areas because, of course, during civil wars, you know, food gets very scarce. And, of course, the first thing to get targeted is your, your wildlife. Um, people need to eat. And so Martin would help the rangers secure these places during these, these very um, dangerous and volatile times. So Martin brought all of that experience, all of that history to the SA Wildlife College. And um, I was fortunate enough to learn from him in a really big way. We spent countless weeks out in the field together, training rangers, sleeping under the stars, um, living, living in big five country, which, you know, for the folks that, that aren't familiar with the big five, it's the big five. It's, it's a, it's a term used to describe the five most dangerous animals to hunt in Africa. And that was coined by the early colonialists and the term is, has always stuck. So it's, you know, lions, leopards, um, and then you've got, you know, elephants, rhinos, and buffalo. So we were training rangers up in that environment. And from the time I met Martin 2009 um, to the last time I saw him, which was February, 2014, about six months before he passed away, uh, Martin had saved my life three times, uh, twice, twice from lions and once from a black mamba. Um, and I say that, I say that with, with a lot of, a lot of confidence. Um, like, Oh, how do you know he's actually saved your life? Well, Bob, if I can, if I can share a story, uh, <laughs> Please. Really... you, you, you've opened this door. Now you need to, you do need to share the story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, yeah. Um, I'll never, I'll never forget the story. It was December, uh, December, 2011. And we were training rangers um, in just outside of the Kruger National Park and big five area. And we had 16 rangers that had come to us um, for a six week program to learn obviously how to operate in the field. And so during this time, you've got six weeks of training. And for one week, we take the students out into the field and teach them how to survive off the land, navigate, communicate, um, what to do if you encounter poachers. Um, basically, really for these students to immerse themselves in a very hostile. These students uh, came from a nature reserve where they'd never seen lions before. And the most dangerous thing they had on their property was an impala or a porcupine. So they, they had no idea um, quite how interesting things were going to get. So I remember it was a really hot afternoon. We departed from our camp probably around three o'clock and we headed into a drainage line where we had just had a huge amount of rain. So the grass is head high and we're marching in single file and we're walking down to this confluence of two rivers and we look up bright blue sky, incredibly hot day, probably around hundred degrees Fahrenheit, 35 Celsius. It's, it's steaming down there, very, very humid. And we see these vultures coming in to land 
and the guide that I was with, uh, Javi, him and I were the only two armed um, instructors at the time. Um, so we're walking in single file. We see these vultures go down. Behind us, we've got a single file line of 16 students. And at the back, we've got Martin and we've got another ranger trainer. His name was Poacher. Um, and that's a story for another time. <laughs> the four of us um, consult. We say, yeah, we're going to approach. We let the students know, all right, be on high alert. Um, Javi leads from the front. I'm right behind him. And we walk up this termite mound. And as we get to the top, we start crawling. Javi puts his head over first, looks back at me, and with his hand indicates something to do with teeth. So I thought, all right, well, let's have a look. I put my head over the termite mound, and we've now walked ourselves into a very famous lion pride called the Birmingham Pride. And at the time, they were 25 strong, so a super pride. <laughs> um, so how did you know, Matt, that they were yeah. the, the so-called Birmingham Pride? Yeah, so the Birmingham Pride's just incredibly famous, and they, they were the predominant pride in our area. Um, so what they would do is in the summer, they would get together, to, um, they would mass, you know, the prey was more prolific, so obviously it was there's a lot more prey to go around, so they got together. And in the winter, the Birmingham Pride would, would split up. So it was the majority of lines in our area had all sort of come together for the summer season. And now we smack bang in the middle of these, of this pride. Yeah. So, so we, all right. And we're about from the, from the closest lion or so we thought we were about, about 10 meters away. So about 30 feet away, but it's the middle of the day. These lions are fast asleep, like completely like out. So we think, all right, this is a great opportunity uh, to show the students like lions. So the wind's in our favor. We have all the students walk up the termite mound. I go to the left of the mound with one rifle and Javi goes to the other side with the other rifle with Martin behind me, Poacher behind Javi. And in between us, we've got 16 students who uh, turns out none of them had ever seen a lion, even like from a vehicle before. So we all get them to grab each other's belts and that's, that's practice in case, you know, a student decides to run. That's the first rule in the bush is do not run. So we all make sure they grab each other's belts. But the guy at the back, um, I'm not sure quite what his situation was that day, but he decided, uh, I don't know if it was conscious or not, to step on probably the driest twig uh, known to man. <laughs> he steps on this thing as everyone gets into position to look at these lions, and it sounded like you had 25 V8 engines starting up all around us. Um, so we'd woken up these lions, um, really like rattled their cages because we had snuck up on them like very close. And... When you're so close to lions or something that's dangerous, I'm sure it could, you know, like be any time you've encountered a close experience with potential death, um, time seems to stand still. So I remember chambering around in my rifle, like the last thing you want to do is, is have to shoot an animal because of human negligence. Um, but, you know, through the training, chambered around in the rifle. And I remember distinctly screaming from Martin right behind me, but the screaming wasn't being directed to the light, the 25 lines in front of us. The screaming was directed, and now I'm turning my rifle to the left. The screaming was directed to a 26th lion, um, a huge female that had somehow been failed. Uh, we had failed to see her and she'd been sleeping almost behind us on the left. <laughs> and by the time I'd got my rifle around to just get a glimpse of her in my left eye, Martin had already stepped between me and this lioness and this lioness had already come up onto stiff front legs. So throwing um, dirt and dust and sand and grass up in, up in our faces. But Martin unarmed 
had snuck between us and had made himself as big as he could. And he's screaming at this line, which is two, maybe three meters at the most away from Martin. So yeah, six, six, eight feet, somewhere in there. And for about three or four seconds, Martin and this lioness just completely lock eyes and he screams and he screams. And this lioness just keeps, um, just keeps growling and snarling. And you can see the spittle coming out of her, out of her mouth. And again, like it felt like this moment lasted forever, but I finally managed to get my rifle barrel around. So now I know, all right, at least I've got like, you know, I've got Martin's back. (laughs) He's already, of course, like put himself between us. Um, And during this time, the other 25 lions, which was a combination of adult females, sub-adults and cubs had managed to get away. And once this, this, let's say very aggressive female next to us had figured out that, okay, the rest of the pride was safe. She started to back off really, really slowly. Um, and, and after a while, you could hear the growling calm down. Uh, we looked around, a lot of the students uh, had, turned, had turned quite pale and two of them, um, let's say it was probably the first time they'd used the toilet uh, that day. So uh, it's probably uh, nicer ways to say it, but yeah, two of the students succumbed to um, yeah, a, a bit of a, uh, you know, as, we, as Martin used to like to call it, sending a fax. Um, <laughs> they, had a, they had a big challenge out there. And I, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I think I smoked one of Martin's cigarettes. In you about had two, a cigarette that day? Yeah. I had a cigarette that day, yeah. yeah. So that, um, that was, I'll never forget that day. And it wasn't so much about bumping that many lines. That was incredible. But it was more around the, the bravery and, and the quick thinking of Martin getting in between us and, and this charging lioness that only he had, he had seen. So I suppose that that story will always be like burnt into my mind and, and incredibly grateful for what Martin did there. Um, and I suppose just to round out the, the final story about Martin and the impetus for starting up GCC, you know, Martin was a man of the people. Martin had had this uncanny ability to inspire youth, inspire youth from impoverished backgrounds, from, you know, disadvantaged communities, from areas that really had no or little hope. Uh, for the youth. And Martin would take these youth, especially youth that were, that were angry, that were frustrated, that had no outlet for their skills. And he would give them meaning and purpose. He'd give them an objective. He'd, you know, they'd come to Martin on a ranger training course and they were, you know, like most late teenagers or early twenties are, they're unruly, they lack discipline. They think they know everything. And Martin would have no problem putting, putting these guys and girls into, into place. But after that, through that process, he would teach them ownership, pride, um, passion and self-respect for becoming rangers. And that was something that was, Martin was really well known for always like, you know, he, his, his whole thing was let's, we'll make a plan. There was no, no problem for Martin. He'd always, he'd always make a plan. And that was something that um, a lot of people spoke about at his, at his funeral. I remember getting a call. It was a, a I believe it was a Sunday. I was in Australia um, at the time and I got a phone call from, I think it was from Ruben, uh, Martin's um, best friend and training partner for more than 20 years. And he said, Matt, uh, Martin's, Martin's passed away. And I'm sure, Bob, you've got these guys in your life. And we've all had these people in our lives, I think, that you think is like, this person's invincible. If anyone was going to you know, be there always, it was Martin for me and for a lot of people. And, and when we heard that Martin had passed away, um, there, was this huge, there was this huge gap, this huge void in in this world of, of ranger training. And, and even bigger than that, it was, it was a void of who's going to invest in the youth now. Who's going to give the youth an opportunity to reach their potential. Um, and so that really was one of the founding um, reasons for, for starting up GCC was to honor Martin's legacy and to make sure that what he believed in, what he stood for didn't, didn't go to the grave with him, that it continued.
you know, through that wonderful story, Matt, you touched on, I think, two issues that really get to the core of what GCC is and, and the work that it does. And the first is really looking at um, the relationship between humans and, and nature. And by nature, I also include wildlife in that. And, you know, in particular, helping people understand, you know, the role of wildlife in the, in the ecosystems that, as we've said, you know, we all depend on for, for life and to sustain our lives. And, you know, what people so often forget is that these, these the big cats in particular, you know, they're the apex predators in these ecosystems. They actually keep them, keep an ecosystem and a habitat healthy by, by their hunting and, and, and feeding habits. And, you know, if you had killed that lion, lioness, you actually would have shifted the dynamic in that ecosystem in ways that frankly would be really, really hard to fix. And then building on that is getting to the, the youth and educating the youth about this very delicate balance that we're in between people and, and nature. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of the intersection of those two, you know, themes of, you know, creating the shift, as you often say, in the relationship between the, the people, in particular the youth, who live around Kruger National Park and the wildlife in and around the park as well? Yeah, absolutely, Bob. That's, that's a really good question. Um, I think I've just been really blessed to, to have known and come across so many mentors and folks that have been in the conservation space for a very, very long time. And it was about three years ago when we were on set for one of our documentaries, Rhino Man, and we were interviewing one of my, my great friends, um, the head of security for the Timbavati Private Game Reserve, um, Anton Mzimba, who's in charge of the operational security for a reserve, which is a reserve the size of the island of Guam. So Anton has a huge responsibility, and the Timbavati Private Nature Reserve is it borders Kruger National Park. It's got open fences to Kruger National Park. Uh, obviously, it's Big Five as well. And it's, it's open to one of the largest um, you know, free-ranging ecosystems in Africa. So Anton's got a massive responsibility to protect, um, protect wildlife and the integrity of the reserve. And I remember one day, um, Anton was having an off day, like we all do sometimes, and um, I had a really profound chat with Anton where he was almost on the verge of tears. The conversation started off around this rhino poaching crisis, which is, yeah, it's crippling. It's crippling our communities, our country, the sustainable future of our people. And it turns out that Anton's greatest fear um, technically wasn't actually losing, losing the rhino. It was the fact that his children and his community and the youth in his community um, didn't even know what a rhino was. And I said, but Anton, surely, you know, surely a lot of your, your community members and your children and, you know, friends and family, they, surely they come in here a lot. And he said, no, Matt, he said, this is a, this is quite, this is quite a, a challenging situation. He, he said, the majority of the youth don't have access to their, their national heritage. And I said, no way, Anton, like that's, that's, that doesn't sound right. And he said, yeah, go and find out and come back to me and you'll see what I mean. So we did a, a rough survey. Um, in schools around three years ago and schools bordering the Kruger National Park. And we started to get numbers around only the fact that three out of 10 children in these schools 
had seen wildlife before, had gone into the Kruger National Park, and that 70% of these children had never been exposed to, to lions. You know, the kids, they, they live, some of these children live within a kilometer of these, of these fences, of these protected areas. They hear the lions roaring at night. They'll hear their grandfathers talking about, oh, when my cattle used to graze with the buffalo and Kruger, they'll hear these stories, but they've never witnessed what it's like to be in the presence of an elephant. Um, so, and then it comes back to that as well. Like if you don't, if you don't know something and if you don't have that exposure to something, you won't love it. And if you don't love something, you won't, you won't protect it. So, you know, poaching, poaching is a huge problem, but the much bigger problem is this ever growing disconnect between people and wildlife. The gap continues to increase. Um, you know, conservation has become quite an exclusive industry. And that was one of the founding beliefs as well of GCC is that conservation needs to be inclusive and that everyone has a part to play in the, in the survival and the, the sort of just seeing our planet flourishing. So getting back over to the, to the youth and after we started to discover that the youth really didn't derive any direct or indirect benefit um, from wildlife, well, we, we started to explore what would it look like to try and shift that, that narrative, that storyline. And so that's where the Future Rangers program was established. And the whole goal of the Future Rangers program, it's a long-term approach whereby we partner up uh, GCC facilitators to visit different schools bordering Kruger National Park. And these, these facilitators deliver consistent conservation curriculum to these students. So in primary school from uh, kindergarten all the way up to the end of seventh grade, that's where we have a foundational phase where we believe all students need to be exposed to wildlife and have that innate love and passion for wildlife. But like any profession, not everyone is going to want to go into conservation. And so when we move into the high school phase, we start to narrow down who stays in our program and who doesn't. And that addresses a really big issue in the conservation industry is that a lot of individuals are in, let's say a lot of local individuals have been pushed into conservation because it's a job, but they were never allowed as youth to see it as more of a calling, more of a passion, something that they were really excited about. And so what happens in this, in this bigger scheme of things with this poaching war is that unless you are completely dedicated and committed, focused to um, a career in conservation, um, you are very prone to being um, coerced by, by poaching syndicates, either, either from taking bribes or from uh, direct intimidation to your families. You know, there's a story about rangers, just really quick, Bob, on, on the side of like how much pressure um, employees in the conservation space get. Rangers who are on the front lines, um, and Anton told me the story, you know, as a ranger, you're, you're almost guaranteed uh, to get a phone call one day from a syndicate, somewhere in a syndicate saying, um, you know, if you go left on patrol today, you will, you know, find you know, a couple hundred dollars in your mailbox when you get home. If you go right on patrol today, you're going to run into us and that's not going to end so well. So you decide what you want to do. You know, if the ranger says, uh -uh, I'm sorry, I'm not taking your bribe. I'm going to go on this patrol today and I'm going to find you and I'll see you out there in the field. If that happens, there's a, there's a pretty decent chance, and this has happened to rangers we work with very closely, that the phone rings again. And this time, the person on the other side of the phone says, all right, if you want to refuse, that's simple. You're at work now, aren't you? Yes, yeah, I'm ready for you. All right, well, right now, we see your wife's doing the laundry, your son's playing soccer, and you can you hear your dog barking. Yeah, you know where we are. Go left, or this ends now. And so you can see, Bob, just how intricate and how complex the situation is. It's not, it's not it's not black and white, but we believe that if we invest in the youth and we give them alternative ways to, to bring in income, 
and we also give them a, a foundational passion uh, for protecting wildlife. It won't solve the problem, but it'll give the students and, and the youth and the future of conservation a, a lot more buy-in um, for, for the protection of wildlife. And additionally, benefits as well, because if you're not benefiting from something, these areas like Kruger National Park, uh, if it doesn't provide enough value to communities, it's going to get turned into grazing, grazing lands or housing developments or mining. So there's a lot of pressure right now um, for us to make sure that the biggest value that Kruger's providing uh, is one that has wildlife and that provides jobs. So that's really where Future Rangers is going and how it fits into the greater scheme of things. Matt, can you give us a glimpse of almost what a day in the life of Future Rangers looks like? So when you, when you talk about being in the classroom, um, when you talk about educating youth, working with youth on these issues, it, it really, it's not idle talk. I mean, it is GCC hands-on in the schools, working with the kids, educating them about the value and the importance of nature. Give us, give us a little color uh, yes, as to uh, what that looks like in very practical terms. Absolutely. So once a week, our facilitators will engage with the same child. So once a week, the students in primary school knows, okay, they're meeting with LEFO, meeting with Promise, and they're going to get um, curriculum that's aligned with the South African government um, educational standards. So it feeds into their existing schooling. And, you know, it could be anything from ecology to biodiversity lessons. We, we really try to have a blended learning approach where, yes, curriculum inside the four walls of a classroom is important, but the more we can get youth to reconnect with nature, the more we can get them outside of the classroom, the better. Um, just yesterday, we were fortunate enough to take some of our eighth grade students, our shining stars from uh, Daimani High School on a game drive. And this, this for many of the children was their first time to see wildlife. So once they move into the, the high school phase, there are a lot more um, activities and opportunities for students uh, to immerse themselves in the natural world. We also use a merit-based system. So the students that you know, have the best marks, show the most passion, that have the greatest aptitude for a career in conservation, will get rewarded with experiences. So game drives, like we mentioned, um, we did yesterday, but, you know, bushwalks, trips, trips to wildlife rehabilitation centers. I had a student yesterday that wants to become a wildlife veterinarian. And so I've connected with his mom. And in the next couple of weeks, he's going to be pairing up with a famous wildlife veterinarian in the area to go in on a dehorning process. So he can see this is what it's going to take to become a wildlife veterinarian. And these are the things I can do um, to make a difference. So that's, you know, it's very tangible rewards. And then as our students near the end of their high school careers, then we shift over to a lot more leadership training where we've got, you know, uh, mentors from local businesses, from the local tourism and conservation industries that mentor these students and help place these students into apprenticeships uh, and internships with the goal being eventual absorption into that, into that sector or where the students can motiv motivate um, to become a part of our Future Rangers scholarship program where we provide funding to send our best and brightest students to get um, conservation education qualifications in um, in a, let's say, in a um, career that is... And about how many students do you reach through this? In yeah. kind of, should we say, the entire breadth of work, Matt? Yeah, so at the moment, Bob, we're in eight schools, four primary schools and four high schools, um, which collectively reaches about 4,000 children every single week on that consistent basis. And our goal is once we've perfected our system, which leans heavily on partners to help us provide those, those rewards, you know, the game drives, the experiences, 
you know, once we've perfected that model and um, we've got, we're sort of ready to scale, we're looking at rolling this out at other conservation areas of, of high priority and high importance where you've got marginalized communities and um, very, very rich biodiverse areas where, where the gap is, is, is increased and we need to bridge that gap by bringing the program in. So yeah, 4,000 students right now, but definitely looking um, to continue the scalability of the Future Rangers program. Well, despite your, your very impressive background and your sterling credentials, Matt, uh, if you're reaching 4,000 students, you can't be doing it alone. Um, <laughs> and so it's clear that none of this would be possible without the, the GCC team. Can you, can you talk a little bit about them and what makes them so special in, in all of this work? Oh my gosh, Bob. Yeah, I, it, gets me, it gets me quite um, incredibly humbled when I think about the team and, and the incredible people that, that we get to spend time with and that have dedicated their, their lives and their time to furthering this cause. Um, so our team's broken up into a couple of different areas. Um, we've got our working team um, with inside the Future Rangers program. Um, so we've got our program director in the States that manages a lot of the monitoring, evaluation, our curriculum, design, um, ensuring that we are always you know, compliant and using best practice methods to teach our children. So that's Kate. Um, and then we've got an incredible on the ground team here. So we've got Leffa and Promise that are from the local communities and that are you know, visiting these eight different schools on a consistent basis and really bringing bringing the excitement into the classroom. I think what's really important to say as well, Bob, is that Leffa and Promise are more than just facilitators. They are incredibly strong, powerful, inspiration women that inspire these youth as role models. Um, that's, that's a huge thing that's lacking in the communities is role models, is, is people and individuals that the students can look up to. And so Promise and Leffa serve more than just, you know, facilitating an amazing wildlife experience our students come to them with some really intense and, and challenging problems, um, which is a huge testament to Leffa and Promise and, and their ability to really be there for the students when it matters. So those, those two incredible ladies are just, just miracles and they work miracles every day in our schools. Um, we've just hired an incredible young man called Mboni who's come through our, the Future Rangers program and the scholarship process, especially. Um, so he's a qualified ranger, but through meeting Mboni, um, we've discovered that he has a huge talent and ability for being on camera. And so we've just hired Mboni to become the presenter of a lot of conservation focused um, programming for the local communities. So we have a brilliant um, working team on the ground here, but then of course, it's the global conservation course. So we're a collective of people from all over the world. We have an amazing uh, board, an amazing board of advisors, um, you know, spanning across a couple of different continents. So um, we've got individuals from, from the political space. We've got folks from the um, luxury world. We've got folks from the digital space, marketing space. Um, we've got folks from like the fire protection space. So folks on our board have really brought in, um, their expertise from different areas that have really helped us as a, as a full organization start to grow and take shape. Um, and then we've also got some technical advisors uh, on the ground here as well, which have really allowed us to do right by the communities. So we've got an incredible principal called Mr. Ernest Hlati, who <laughs> he's about an hour and a half's drive from your closest grocery store. That's how far uh, his school is 
and it borders the Kruger National Park. But out of the entire province, his school has got the highest matric rates or the highest uh, graduation rate um, for his high school students. So we're working with him really closely to ensure that um, to ensure that his students are given an amazing chance to excel um, in our program and with our scholarships. And then of course, we've got, we've got this brilliant marketing communications team that again is, is based you know, between the Philippines, Switzerland, the United States, and they continue to bring our stories and our messages from the field to life to our, to our many donors. And I mean, that's, that's another massive part of our team is, is our donors. Um, anywhere from our individual supporters that have been us been with us for the last five years, all the way to our, you know, really generous and transformational um, supporters like the Mortgage Family Foundation, who has helped us with operational funding for the last two years, uh, which without them, we really, we wouldn't be close to where we are today. Um, one of the founding tenets as well of GCC is that through partnerships with foundations and with corporations, um, we ensure that 100% of the public um, donation goes towards the cause that they're excited about. And so with partners like the Mortgage Family Foundation, um, you know, luxury brands like Tissot, Suiza, Garmont, we've been able to ensure that all of the money, if you donate $10, all of the funds raised um, go to the cause that you intend. Because I know there's been a lot of controversy around, you know, sort of nonprofits not really doing what they sell. And we always wanted to be transparent so that you knew that you really and truly were making the difference that you intended to make. Um, and I think the last, let's say, part or link in our huge team and our huge family um, really comes down to the communities that we serve. Um, it's very critical and important that it's a, it's a bottom-up approach and that the community lets us know what they need and our role and our goals are always to serve the best interests of the community. Um, I'm sure you know the story, Bob, of um, USAID putting in hundreds of thousands of wells across Africa. But because the, let's say, the, the knowledge of how to operate those wells, um, how, to, how to use them, wasn't transferred to the local communities, um, I think it's like more than 90% of those wells don't, don't function anymore. And so we've learned from those, um, yeah, those, learning, those learning experiences. We want to make sure that it's, it's a community um, initiated project that the community's got full buy-in and with that buy-in we've been able to to move mountains that um, you know previously we struggled with and I think that's that's key for any organization moving forward is ensuring that you're listening to the voices of your your audience of your target market because if they're happy like the rest takes care of itself so there's probably one thing that everyone in the world agrees on that we're all eager for 2022 to come to an end <laughs> Uh, having said that, I, I do worry that the challenges of 2021 could very much rival the challenges we've all lived through in 2020. Mm -hmm. Having said that, you know, GCC has just, you know, done such a great job rising to the challenges of 2020 and delivering value, shall we say, in so many different ways. As the, uh, the conductor of this, uh, shall we say, global symphony, Matt. <laughs> who's able to get all of us individual musicians uh, playing this beautiful score of music. Looking ahead to 2021, what are your, your plans for how to continue harnessing our talents, bringing us together in a way that can actually achieve an impact around the world, in, in particular South Africa? 
Yeah, I think when looking at 2021 and, and what the future looks like, what gets me most excited about where we headed is that during this, this COVID pandemic, we, of course, weren't able to reach our students. The school shut down um, and the learning uh, failed to continue. So when it comes to our programmatic approach, we've been really busy with redefining how we deliver our conservation programming, excuse me, and making sure that our youth still stay connected to, to the core of what we care about, to the natural world, to conservation, and to the, the preservation of that world. So we're looking at moving into more of a digital learning landscape whereby youth can still access valuable conservation curriculum and resources, even when they can't get to school. So we are seeing how we could still reach our students through something as simple as a smartphone. We've conducted some preliminary surveys with over 500 students in the local communities, and more than 98% of them have got access to a smartphone, um, which, is, which is astounding and really exciting for us because we know, okay, even when, let's say not when, but well, let's not say if, but when um, another pandemic comes through, because uh, we know it's, you know, this is probably the first of many with the way that our ecosystem has been treated. Um, we can still reach our students, which is incredibly exciting. And the second thing I'm most excited about for the way forward in uh, 2021 is this idea of an inspiration engine. You know, a couple of months ago, um, through some conversations in the communities, I started to ask the, the youth, like, what are you guys watching um, as far as nature-based content goes? And it turns out that the youth aren't really that excited about what, you know, watching a bunch of old white dudes with beards tell them about how their wildlife and their ecosystems function. <laughs> um, imagine that. Imagine that. Um, but, that's, but that's all they've got. And so they watch it, but they aren't really inspired by by what they're seeing. And this, this is feedback coming from the ground. And so we imagined a world whereby students could log on um, to a platform, log on to YouTube and access content that was made for them by a local production company, um, by a local presenter in a local language that was highlighting local heroes and local careers in conservation. And so we kick starting that off with Mboni in the second week of January, 2021. And it's going to be a 24 part series highlighting all the different career pathways and avenues that youth can pursue in this greater wildlife economy. Anything from a wildlife veterinarian to a anti-poaching pilot, to a reserve manager, to a chef at a five-star lodge. We want the youth to understand that they can be more than just a ranger or a tracker, which is the two predominant careers that local youth go into. We want to open up their minds and get them inspired and get them excited that they don't have to wait for an opportunity to come around. They can start being proactive and they can start to, they can start to see the steps, the necessary steps required in order to gain entry into that, into that career, into that position. And so for us, that's really, really exciting. We will have it subtitled into English, but all of the interviews will be conducted in the local language, Shitsonga, with Mboni being, being the host and being another local hero that we use to inspire children to say, listen to Mboni's story and hear where he's come from and what he's doing and start to get the children to think, well, why can't I? What if? So I think those two things, Bob, is, is really got me excited for not just, not just getting over, you know, getting, getting through 2020, but learning from 2020, adapting with the times and end of the day, just ensuring we, we create more and more impact for these incredible youth out there. What drives you, Matt, to, to drive impact? 
for the youth? I mean, what, what has brought you to GCC and what has brought you to make all the sacrifices needed to create an organization like GCC? Oh, that's a really good question, Bob. Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. So I grew up with my family right next to the Kruger National Park. And I remember when I was six years old, I remember that was the first time I got to go into Kruger National Park. And yeah, the wildlife was beautiful, of course. But the thing I remember the most is when you drive through Kruger, there always ranges there. They check your vehicle, they ensure that you know, you've got your permits. And as you drive through that boom gates in Kruger National Park, the ranger um, you know, comes to stands to attention and he salutes you. And it was that moment that made me realize like you stepping into the, the garden of God when you cross over um, and you drive through those gates. And my life took a bit of a, a strange turn. Um, I spent, after my folks got divorced when I was 11, I moved to the States and I lived in, in major cities. I lived in, I think, 13 different states across the U.S. until I was 19. I pursued careers as a professional tennis player, as a fighter pilot, but none of those things ever touched my soul. And one day I was sitting on a beach in Hawaii, of all places, where my dad and my sister were living, and I was sitting in, in paradise. But in my heart, I was, I was miserable. I was, I was leading a life that was... It just it lacked purpose and it lacked something bigger than myself. And all of a sudden I had this vision that came back to me of those rangers at the gates of Kruger saluting me as a kid and the awe and the, just the, the, the magic that it cultivated in my heart. And I remember the experience that I got to have when I was seven is I had two rangers, armed rangers, take me for a walk um, through one of the reserves. My, my parents, yeah, I, think, I don't know what they were thinking, but they let this tiny blonde boy go for a walk, which was brilliant. I can't thank them enough for that. But I had this flashback to when I was with those two rangers and the, the connectedness that I felt and how precious and valuable, not just the land was, but that the people were involved in this, in this conservation uh, struggle. And, so I had this epiphany and yeah, I, I moved back. I turned in my green card. I said goodbye to my dad and my sister. I moved back. I got qualified as a guide. And this is sort of one of the last stories that I'll, I'll tell you for today, Bob. I've been talking your ear off, but just to show you um, the, the, the beauty of serendipity and how if you follow the trail, uh, things work out. So I, I came to the Wildlife College in 2009. I trained as a guide and I was promised a job. Uh, guiding in a five-star lodge when I was done. When I was finished, I remember calling from a payphone and I said, hey guys, like, you know, I'm ready to come up to your lodge and start guiding your guests. And they said, I, I couldn't even get a meeting with the boss. Uh, he um, had his secretary tell me that the job was filled. So now I'm stuck back in South Africa in, in Johannesburg in winter, which Bob, I promise you, you don't want to come to Joburg in winter um, for anything except passing through to Kruger. And I'm there with my mom and my gran, completely depressed. Uh, for a solid month and my grand and I used to go to meditation classes but that night the meditation class was cancelled so what's the second best thing to meditation it's gambling <laughs> so my grand said let's go gambling at the airport at the Joburg airport which was just all right let's sure uh, it was it's the most random thing we're not gamblers it was the first time my grand and I had done this go to the airport sit down we had a lovely seafood supper I look up through this crazy busy crowd at the casino and straight through this tiny gap i see the ceo of the southern african wildlife college Teresa sari and i run up to her and i say Teresa, it's matt i hope you remember me we've, we've met once and she said matt what are you doing here i thought you were working as a guide i told her my sorry story and a week later i was on a on a, a trip 
to back to the wildlife college where I, I worked um, I started as a volunteer um, and it was because Teresa gave me that chance gave me that opportunity to like, literally just to have a chance and to prove myself and to do something that I, I really loved is is what got me I suppose 12 12 years later um, talking to you here today Bob and so to bring it back around full circle what really drives me is the, the same way that Teresa gave me that chance and so many other mentors and individuals like Martin gave me the chance to unlock my potential and to follow my dreams I want to ensure that and I think we need to ensure that in order for these protected areas and these wild spaces in order for them to survive and to thrive we need to unlock the love the potential and the drive for the youth to to conserve these incredible places so it's about it's about paying it forward and it's about ensuring that we start to change the narrative um, and put the power back in the hands of the of the people and the communities that that lost the decision-making powers that lost the final say in how wildlife areas should be run and it's about time that we handed that baton back over to them and and as a team as a country as a world we work together to ensure that these incredible places survive so that's why i do what i do well matt you have one more story to tell um i'm now eager to know did you uh did you end up gambling that night in the Joburg airport <laughs> with your grandma i lost it all but i gained lost it all <laughs> you want a career, but lost all your money, I guess, huh? That was all the money I had. It was 50 Rand, which is about $3. So I made it back in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to follow through on your story, though, and, and, and what drives you, talk a little bit about how, you know, others who just so support the, not just the mission of GCC, but the, this, you know, broader vision and mission of, you know, bringing humans and nature into, into better balance, conserving ecosystems, protecting wildlife and so on. How can listeners of this podcast help foster a relationship between people and wildlife, even if they don't live in a place like South Africa or Kenya or Brazil, what have you. Yeah. If someone's listening to this and maybe they're in a big city somewhere, what would you tell them that they could, that they could do to have the most impact? That's a great question, Bob. I think the greatest thing that anyone could do is first of all, is the, well, I suppose two things. And I'm not sure what the, the order would be. I suppose ideally is, is to return to nature as quickly as you can. You know, this, uh, having been to Central Park, even thinking of massive cities, even in, you know, in a city the size of New York, you can still find, you know, nature everywhere that you go. I mean, they've got some of the largest peregrine falcon populations in New York. Nature is all around us. And I think that's one of the greatest remedies and, and solutions that obviously like, yeah, if we return to nature, we'll appreciate it a lot more. There's going to be a lot more value placed around nature because, you know, once you love something, you'll protect it, that whole ideology. But I think more than that, returning to nature and especially returning to nature together and having conversations and walking, you know, with your feet on the ground, together i think you know before this podcast bob i was also interested just to think about you know why we might have gone off track you know and more than more than half of the world's population lives in cities now i think 54 percent of the global population lives in urbanized areas and i'm really interested to see if there is a correlation between you know us going off track and sort of losing our way with a lot of the social issues we're facing right now and and a disconnect from a natural world and so I guess that'd be my biggest thing is make, you know, make a plan and find a way to reconnect, even if it's just, you know, 
you know, to, to observe an incredible sunset or to spend time, you know, smelling a freshly cut lawn if you live in the suburbs. But I think nature provides and gives so much to us. And I think we've seen how fragile we are as a race through this whole COVID, this whole COVID induced time and how fragile everything is. And Bob, you and I have talked about this, especially with the program that we're working on for future rangers with the ecosystem entrepreneur program, you know, just how, you know, the earth is a reflection of, you know, our collective consciousness and vice versa. And I think this has been a, just a great opportunity for us to return to nature a little bit more and to remember that we are not separate from nature. We, we surely are part of it. We're not, you know, the biggest or the greatest. We're just a part of it. And I think returning to nature can humble us as well. So, yeah, I would say we surely have to get out there. And if you can't, if you really are stuck on like the 29th floor of a high rise in Shanghai, if you're brave enough to make it now to the 40th or 50th minute of, of this chat, I think education is key as well. So I think just by listening to a podcast like this and all the incredible guests that you're going to be interviewing, Bob, I think, you know, spending time listening, learning and understanding that we all do have a part to play. And I think to bring it back around also full circle, just to say that GCC was founded on that principle as well. You know, everyone has something to give. Everyone has something to put forward in this massive massive concerted effort that we have to put forth to save not just to save but to preserve our planet to see it thrive and so we all have something to give you know obviously you know if you've got skills you know that's brilliant if you've got money that's needed um if you've got time if you've got a listening ear if you've got compassion you know if you've got if you've got passion you can move mountains and i think that's probably the the final thing i'll say on this question bob is you know we all have something to give and i think it's up to each and every one of us to find where where we can slot in. And I think the team that has been assembled around GCC is testament to the fact that we all have something brilliant and beautiful to give this world. And uh, you know, this, the saddest thing is not to let that shine. So we've all got a huge part to play in, in getting reconnected. That's wonderful. I would like you to leave all the listeners of this podcast with a final gift, Matt. And this is something that all the, all those who appear on the, podcasts will be asked to do. And that is, I want to end all these conversations on a positive note. So, you know, despite all the ravages of COVID-19 that you talked about, the struggles that you see every day to get kids a good education, the threats to iconic species like the cheetahs, the rhinos, the lions, there is reason for hope. In your mind, what's the, what's the thing that keeps you most hopeful? Yeah, Bob, you've got me uh, got goosebumps here again. <laughs> um, I think I'm really glad. I'm really glad that I get to answer that question for you today um, and not two days ago. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's because yesterday we got to take 11 learners and a few um, of our selected community members on a, on a game drive. Um, so we got to see three different prides of lions. We got to, you know, obviously see elephants and for the, it was the first time for a lot of these children to experience this, but speaking about hope and, and why there's something positive to look forward to in our future, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it would, it would have been almost unheard of where a group of local community students um, would have been welcomed in with open arms to a five-star lodge, you know, where lunch and experiences and time was invested into the future of these youth. And after all this country has been through 
and after all of the the violence and the hatred and the hurt yesterday when i got to see what it meant to the youth to see wildlife to see their national heritage for their first time it made all of the <laughs> 17 hour days where you you know sitting on zoom calls and you're not sure potentially you know where the next um, big investors coming from and you know you're wondering how to continue getting education to your students when you see the look in their eye and you've got young and old and you've got black and you've got white and you've got rich and poor all sitting on that same land rover seeing the same lion seeing the same iconic species that defines our global culture and you realize that as long as people have exposure to wildlife and exposure to nature we all at our deepest core level we do want to fight for these incredible incredible places and these magnificent creatures and that gives me hope it gives me huge hope to know that as long as we keep doing what we're doing and as long as there are youth that are being set on a trajectory for success and that they can have the opportunity to connect with their their natural world there is there's a very very good chance that the things that are closest to our heart are going to endure for a very, very long time. My, my favorite quote is from Winston Churchill during the heights of the Second World War, and that is, evil is only allowed to prevail when good men and women step aside and do nothing. And I think as long as we've got the Anton and Zimbas in the world who gets up every morning and fights as a ranger to protect our wildlife, to keep rhinos safe from poachers, as long as we've got Mr. Ernest Clatty, a principal from Daimani High School, who for 30 years has been educating children in the hardest of conditions, as long as we've got Promise and Leffer inspiring the next generation of conservationists and custodians and guardians, as long as we've got Mboni Mazamani, uh, you know, sharing his passion with the youth about the natural world, and as long as we've got committed individuals like this GCC team, I truly believe that we're going to go the distance. Matt, that was a, just a beautiful and powerful way to end this podcast. Thank you very much. I look forward to many more podcasts with you, the GCC team, and all the people like Anton and Mbani that really are making the world a better place through their passion, their drive, and maybe most important, just their absolute refusal to quit even in the face of some really tough challenges. So thank you very much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate your time. And thank you so much for having me today. I can't wait to hear who's next on your show.